trust anybody now we're all very tired Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from Coldsploitation.com and I'm joined by my co-host Martin. How's it going? Today is a very important episode. It's a special episode. And I'm not just talking about that because we're doing John Carpenter's The Thing, which we've wanted to do for a long time. Wanted to hold off on it for That's something right. special. That's right. What do you why, why do you think this episode's special, Martin? John Carpenter's birthday the other day. Uh, that's true. That is true. That's a special occasion for sure. It racked me up like a thousand Reddit points. So <laughs> <laughs> I posted his birthday on there. I, I definitely uh, got, I, I actually like almost tripled my account value <laughs> by getting so many upvotes. But no, no, that's not what I'm talking about either. It's not the, That's not why it's special. We've it's our get- 100th episode. Oh, I was going to say, we've been getting the thing weather outside of late. So that's we, true. Yeah. Everyone get their Molotovs and flamethrowers and. J and B Scott Treddy. That's right. That's right. No, it's our it's our 100th episode. We're very excited to be here for 100 episodes for you. Uh, when we started out, we started with uh, spaghetti western, and we've progressed so far from there. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we still got Ennio Morricone. So that's right. That's right. Yeah, we uh, th- we're returning to our roots with Ennio Morricone in this episode. Um, but yeah, we're we're at 100 episodes, and that's a pretty compelling. Uh, case for Blood and Black Rum podcast. Not so much that it's lasted 100 episodes because let's be honest here, we're not like trying to pull in ratings or anything like that. <laughs> but it's it's more so impressive because we've stuck around for 100 episodes. <laughs> we're like, yep, we'll do 100 episodes. This and I think it. that's this is it. Yeah, this is, we're, call, we're Pack, calling it quits after this. Packing our bags. Nah, nah, just kidding. Can't do that. Can't do that. No, we've got too many Marvel and DC movies to cover. We can't call it quits yet. What about the Dark Universe? That's right. Oh, well, I don't think that's coming around again. So <laughs> we did the one and only Dark Universe. Yeah, we should have called it quits right there. Well, we finished something, so that's it. We're done. No, but uh, we've we've wanted to do uh, John Carpenter's The Thing for a while now. Um, and they're just we wanted to save it for a special occasion. Um, there's just something about it. Uh, we, we've... Enjoy, we enjoy watching it quite a bit. Um, it's, well, we both have a great appreciation for John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Film and music wise, it's probably it's one of my favorite John Carpenter films. It's not. I won't say it's my favorite because oh, Halloween is my favorite. Oh, why'd you have to say that? I was going to pose that question oh, at the end. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm well, sorry. There, there goes that. Well, you yeah. you'll have to in the interim while you're just sitting there, <laughs> think of another question. No, but I, I will say that. You know, in terms of uh, John Carpenter's filmography, I will say that it's probably, I would say it's my second favorite film in his in his uh, filmography. How about you? You know, it's a, it's a toss-up, really, between Halloween and The Thing, probably. I mean, I'm right there with you, because uh, Halloween definitely edges out just because of my obsession with Halloween, the Halloween in general. I, I, I like sci-fi movies more. 
So, and this is a, this is a really great so um, great actually, moder- great I would say a terrific modernization of a classic 50 sci-fi film. That really brings like, up a good point for me too because um, I've been reading H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and uh, going through the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, but that's been uh, compiled by Leslie S. Klinger, and uh, in it. He he mentions in certain Lovecraft stories, he's like, well, this is really where Lovecraft was beginning his science fiction stage. And it's interesting because his science fiction stories are still pretty deeply rooted in horror. And I think you get that quite a bit with The Thing because, yes, this is a science fiction film, but it's also pretty deeply rooted in horror. And so you really have that crossover between... You can you can tell where they're crossing over to. It's not like well, there's one and then there's the other. No, they they intersect. There's not like a moment where it's just like completely horror or it's completely science fiction. Um, it's kind of interesting in that regard too, because in general, like we when we talk about genres like that, we kind of don't really use them interchangeably. Like this is a horror science fiction genre. Um, it's not really. It's more so like well, this is straight up horror with sci fi elements, or this is straight up science fiction. This is a perfect blend. Yeah, this 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 one is really a perfect blend. So um that it kind of strikes me because it does seem um sort of Lovecraftian in that sense of having these um these the, first of all the science fiction horror element to it, but then also um a being that's really difficult to describe. So the thing really is not a you can't really describe it easily because it doesn't really have a specific shape. You know, we get we kind of get like the body horror aspect of it, but we don't really get a specific shape to it. And that's very Lovecraftian in the fact that Lovecraft loved to just be like really lazy with his descriptions. He, he'd get really into it with the, you know, adjectives and stuff like that. But when it came down to it, it's like basically boiled down to this is really too difficult to describe in modern English language. So I'm just not going to. Well, at least he's not trying. Dickinson overloaded his works with. Yeah. Being wordy. Yeah, that's true. Just read, well, just read A Tale of Two well, Cities. Like, easy, easy on the verb. Well, Lovecraft is very wordy, too. I actually, um, one time I was doing a reading of a Lovecraft story for a podcast. They were going to do um, these uh, episodes of stories that were within the public domain. So I did a reading for them. Um, I don't think that episode ever came out. I don't think the, the show ever came out. Um, but I did the rats in the walls and it, it was so difficult to actually read that out loud because I really found myself getting breathless because there's so, the sentences are so long. They're so constructed. There's so, so much alliteration. You're reading T.S. Eliot's way, uh, The Wasteland aloud. It's really <laughs> difficult. I encourage anybody to just like go back and try to read Lovecraft out loud. It's fucking difficult. It's very difficult. How many people do you think actually read Lovecraft or just kind of like have hopped on the bandwagon? I feel like a lot of people, um, they know Lovecraft. They know about Lovecraft. They've heard a lot about him. Well, you know, Stephen King. Well, say mainly because of Cthulhu. Right. Cthulhu uh, mythos. Um, Stephen King, for sure, uh, has, you know, kind of brought Lovecraft's name into his art a bunch, like, you know, as a, he's been influenced by him. Um, so I would say, you know, some people, adventurous people probably have gone out and actually read some Lovecraft, but for the most part, I think people just recognize that anything to do with like cults or uh, elder gods or, you know, things like that, that's just specifically Lovecraftian. So when you say the thing is kind of Lovecraftian, I think a lot of people would kind of 
not really see the resemblance because they would be thinking like, well, it's not like Cthulhu. It's not like a elder God sort of thing. But in the same sense, Lovecraft did a lot of stories about things from other worlds coming to this earth, embedding themselves in, and then sort of like poisoning things as it, you know, as this, uh, history unfolded and then sort of poisoning that area of earth. Like the color out of space is a great example of this, uh, being from outer space coming to earth, landing in a specific area and then poisoning that whole area. And then eventually, you know, that seeps into the ground and it, and it comes out as a color that's really undefinable because it's not within the English language. We can't really define this color. It doesn't look like anything that we have. And that's very, you know, that's a lot like the thing in that sense of something coming to this earth, being embedded in it. And then for years and years and years, it kind of just festers until it eventually comes out. So the thing is Lovecraftian. I'm going to say it right now before we actually get into the discussion of the film itself. It's I, I, I find it very Lovecraftian. I, I will say, I mean, I'm not, I haven't read Lovecraft. I, I am the layman when it comes to that. I have a very basic understanding. I mean, do mean a very basic understanding, mm-hmm. as, as I've said before on the podcast. When it comes to reading novels, not really my thing. Not, I much, not your thing. I'd much rather read a history book. Yeah. You know, or the newspaper, something like that. Very dry, I guess, in that sort. <laughs> um, which is amazing why, like, something like movies and music, like, strike me so. But novels, I just honestly can't really get myself into. But anywho, going off of that, I'll say one of the great things that I love about this film is taking the original, the thing from another world. And, like I said, one, doing a remake with the best intentions and doing it the way, like, a remake should be done. With love, care, and making the film better. Yeah. And in that sense, what's the big turnaround from the original to this? In the original, it's more like a stereotypical sci-fi 50s film. By the end, like, the crew there is all gung-ho, let's work together, you know, to try to take on, you know, the thing. Yeah. Here, it's they turn that on the nose. It's paranoia. Anybody could be the thing. We don't know. And what's that a lot like? Another great uh, remake that did the same thing that we've also covered on this podcast before. 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Which um, is another example of a, of a great remake of taking the original idea, modernizing it, and, you know, doing, like, and changing enough things and doing enough things different to make it interesting, different, and worth standing on its own. I'll leave that till the film discussion itself, but there are a lot of similarities to the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. A lot of similarities yeah. here. Um, I don't know if that's uh, an, an intentional thing or if it was kind of a. I think the story. You know, kinda... they just share that. Yeah, this, they share the same type of storyline, but the only difference is one's in a secluded place and the other one's in a right. you know, civilized. Yeah, area. yeah but the, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between those those two films. Um, the one other thing too that you mentioned with the the uh, this as this being a uh, remake of you know uh, John Carp one of John Carpenter's favorite films, it's kind of surprising that Thing for Another World is one of John Carpenter's favorite films. It's kind of a very random choice from a smattering of 1950s sci-fi films. You know that's like saying you know for whatever reason the giant Gila monster is your favorite. 1950s film it's just a very random 
decision. Like I wouldn't that, say like them. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't say that like um anybody now could really understand why this film in particular is John Carpenter's favorite film. Even even ones that like well them is a really big one from the yes, two, that's, even, even even still like if someone was like to say the 1953 the day the earth stood still was it, Exactly. Uh, like, even from, like, the time, like, when Carpenter was a kid, and that'd be something like, oh, yeah, you know, you can really latch on to. Um, you know, for memory-wise, but even still, I'd probably have, like, like really? Yeah. Yeah, I think this <laughs> more so has to do with nostalgia guess, yeah, then. than anything else, you know, because I wouldn't say that's a very well-regarded film anyway. You know, I, not that it's not well-regarded, but that it's not really... It's never really made its way into mainstream cinema where people are like, yeah, I love that film. You know, there's there's a overwhelming consensus that it's a great film. Well, it's become it's like, a, like like the 1950s sci-fi, you know, movies like that have become quite... Outside of literally probably The Day the Earth Stood Still and Them, you know, yeah. it, they mainly like, yeah, it's okay, it's always just some random... Yeah, nuclear MacGuffin, right? Earth, exactly. You know, they're, and then... they're more so just well known now for the nuclear element to them, either the nuclear element or the um, outside invasion element. And the, yeah, and the, and, you know, of the paranoia the, of, of that of time the, period. Of and that, that's actually a great point too, because in those films, the paranoia comes from not with the group within, yeah. but the invaders, the outsiders, so invasion of the body snatchers, like the outsiders, and then, then you know, and the thing, it's the thing itself. Here, though, it's Again, it's turning it on snow. It's taking that idea and then implementing it across the entire film. Right. Across it, the entire cast. And and, and and that was indicative of the time period, too. So the 50s, the invasion was, you know, the, the Russian threat. outside threat was really apparent to everybody seeing the film. So in, in some ways, and I don't know how many people would actually pick up on the underlying metaphor for it at the time. But in, in a lot of ways, it was just indicative of that time period of, of being afraid of an outside threat. And, you know, that that was always there. And so that fear was was um, easy to interpret. But here in the 1980s, that fear had kind of slipped aside. Like there wasn't a really a fear of the outside at that point. There was more of a fear of the interior uh, elements. But I think that John Carpenter does a really great job of making the thing into something different and really picking up on the metaphors of an interior threat of paranoia within, you know, a group, um, to make it different from, you know, his, his own inspirations. And he, he's not the only one too. I mean, I know invasion of the body snatchers in 78 was in the seventies, but if you think about late seventies to like the mid eighties, good time for rebooting, uh, fifties cult classics like that. Cause you also sure. had the blob. Yeah, which I never saw the '80s Blob, but I've heard good things. '80s about, Blob is great, which I've heard. I heard have it. Very good things about. Yeah. Um, also, another film we done, Cronenberg's uh, version of The Fly. Sure, you know. Yep. Take again. Yeah, take, you have to think at that point. It's it's almost like um, the d- directors of the time who watched those films. Ex- exactly. Yeah. We're we're almost entering into the next generation of that with all the remakes that we have now of people who are like, well, I watched you know Prom Night back when I was a kid really made an impression on me i would like to remake it um i think we've lost some of the magic of actually doing it like now it's more so like well i think that could make money oh well, yeah <laughs> um back then it was more so well, like i was really influenced by this i want to put my own spin on it and so that's and the studio is just yeah. like here's this amount of money make right. sure you make that money back exactly and, and we'll yeah. call it a deal yeah because i mean there were definitely limitations there with like well here's the budget that you have 
make it work. You know, if, if you're going to make this, make it work. And um, Which studios today are very much go for the safe bet. That's why you see the, as much as we complained about it, the sequels and remakes and the stretch of ideas of originality are, you know, few and far between. Because again, it's, they want the safe bet. They're, they want to make their money. So what's making money? Superhero films. We'll just keep pumping those fuckers out. Why? Because we know people are going to see them. And until they stop going to see them, we're going to just keep doing it. Same thing with like Star Wars. I personally don't want a Star Wars, as I've said before, as a huge Star Wars fan on this podcast. I don't want a Star Wars film every year. You're diluting the product. But they're going to keep doing it. Why? It makes a shit ton of money. Yeah. Last Jedi got panned by a lot of fans, which I still even haven't seen. Right. That's how little you care about it now. But it's but at the same I do want to see I mean, it. You but gotta I, see it, but but I haven't had like somebody to go with to see it. But at the same time, I mean they're gonna keep doing it, even though it's getting like the fans are gonna don't like it. You're still gonna go see it, why? And they're gonna still make another one because you're compelled to. Because people are compelled to. Everyone bitched about by yeah. the end of the, you know, prequels, they're terrible. You still went and saw. You still made Lucasfilm a shit ton of money. So even and then even though Solo seems like it's going to be a clusterfuck with all the directors that have been on it. And Who's now on it now? Ron I know, Howard. I know Ron is, Howard is on it, which, the, I was, uh, which I was kind of surprised. Uh, yeah. But you know, people are still going to go see that. But but anyway, I like. Um, I think what you know we're getting at is that we're kind of entering into that new territory, or you know, repeating territory of filmmakers remembering things from their own childhood remaking them there's and kind th- of a smattering of films like from the past 20 years that i would have a very hard time of seeing people like anything of the past 20 years that people are like oh we should remake that yeah yeah i would say you know there are some outliers um i'm, I'm not just saying- i'm just saying the way like the way like it is today i know remakes are you know are in in vogue but i mean like do you really see like if someone's like who's like a horror in the slasher director right you really see them going like, you know what? I really need to remake Urban Legend. Yeah. Or you know, I know, and, or I know what you did last summer. It's like out of all of them, it'd be Scream. It's already getting done on MTV, though. Right. So. Yeah. No. I mean, and and in some ways, I could see it happening as a revitalization of the slasher genre. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like, but then you run into the dilution of that being we have all these remakes already. Not only that, the big thing is the whole supernatural thing with, like, paranormal activity and, like, the POV stuff. So, I mean... It's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of films I'm trying to think off the top of my head from the past, like, 25 years that people would literally be, like... And a studio would, at this point, greenlight, like, we gotta do that. Yeah. I I can't... Yeah, I I can't think of very many, that's for sure. But I'm sure there are some that will eventually... See the light of day. I mean, I guess maybe you could say that with again, like with the continuation, well, like, the unnecessary continuation, like Jurassic, you know, Jurassic World one and two. Sure, now. it's like sure. Saw, Saw is basically the new Saw was basically a, I mean, you would say a soft reboot, I guess soft, soft reboot, but but still, like that makes more sense though, because again, like, again, with like a slasher film, you can always just reboot, yeah, it like like terminator genesis that's kind of like who what why right you know? <laughs> yeah and uh oh by the way too good time to bring up saw nine on the horizon did jigsaw even do well and i mean i imagine it did well enough but i'm just saying like 
I it, mean, I, and I, you know what? And at this point, I'm so invested in the series. You're and, like, you gotta see it. Gotta... I will see it because I didn't. I actually, as we were, when we reviewed it, I, I mean, didn't think Jigsaw was Jigs- that bad. Jigs- but... Jigsaw was fine. I would say Jigsaw was fine. It was, uh, you know, it was kind of how I feel about like Wonder Woman. It's like it was fine. It was, it was our, you know, it was all right. I, I guess I would watch it again. I'd, I'd see the next one. I would probably actually get on DVD or Blu-ray just to watch it again, see like kind of yeah. like how it, how it shapes up again. Yeah. Um, another, oh yeah. And, and also it had to have done pretty well because dead by daylight has hinted that the next killer in their DLC pack is from saw. So it's going to be jigsaw. It's hard to say because as a character, he doesn't as a killer jigsaw himself would be a really strange. I have Billy just in a fucking. Yeah, exactly. Like Like a, yeah, like it's probably going to be something like a guy in a pig mask or something like that. But but the hints that they've released, which they just released a teaser trailer, uh, was of um, uh, like a bear trap, like a reverse bear trap from the first, and it looked like the room from Saw. So interesting. I don't know how that concept will work within Dead by Daylight, but um, that's those are the uh, teasers right now. I know we've gotten a little off the beaten path here, but I did think of a modern. Well, it's our, still our intro, so we're we're not technically yeah. talking all about the thing. It's, right a, spe- now. it's a special hundredth episode. So that's we'll... right. We can talk about whatever we want. Um, but no. Um, I will th- say one of the films of recent times that have probably come around and totally improved on the original. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, just, I, can't I, I think a lot of people have wrote... This is good, too, because I did want to bring this up a little bit for the 100th episode of, like, what our favorite episodes were, what we've done in the past, stuff like that. You know, retrospective sort of thing. So this is good, because we did it not too long ago for our um, Halloween remake Halloween special. And that seems like just yesterday we went and saw it. I know, it theater. does. It does, really. Um, but, but interestingly, a lot of people have rose-colored glasses about the 1990s it. Uh, they remember it at fondly. And I think that has something to do with the age that they saw it at. Because, sure, when if you were younger, seeing it on TV, the miniseries... Probably scary pretty, shit. Pretty scary. Going back to watch it now, I think a lot of people will be very disappointed in what they remember it being. Because it's... Uh, first of all, you have to fir- invest that time. It's like a fucking six-hour miniseries. So, investing the time is not as easy as it once was because... Everybody was sitting down in the 90s to watch TV at that point. Because at the water cooler the next day, if you didn't catch the you first either watching part of that, the It miniseries. You're yeah. either watching that, Seinfeld, or, you know, ah, what the fuck's... Twin Peaks. Right, you yeah. Know, in 1990s. Yeah, and if you, did, if you didn't catch the It miniseries that night, well, then you're going to be missing out at the water cooler the next day. But I think now, like, a lot of people have rose-colored glasses about it thinking back but they haven't really gone back to watch it if you go back to watch it it's really doesn't hold no up. it does not hold up at all um god that that, that 90s style early 90s style oh, yeah it's like john ritter with like a slight mullet oh god he's in the best shape of his life though in that which you know i mean i, I know it's supposed to fit the role because his kid was the fat kid but like man it's like it's like that's john ritter good lord you know yep yep I mean, I, I think they did a really good job with it. And I am excited that they it's two-parter because it did allow them a lot of time with the... Like, just think about it. That first movie was two hours long and pretty much needed all two hours of it to really hit all of the points that the, the story actually has for the kids. 
because we're talking about a thousand plus page novel here of um, both kids and adults. So you, if you devote only like half of the movie of just one movie to kids and half to the adults, you're going to miss out on a lot of the aspects of that film. So to have it cut into two was a great idea. And yeah, they did a great job with that as a, as a remake of that original. Um, so now's a good time to bring up the, the, the question. What are your, some of your favorite episodes from the first 100 that we've done? Um, first one comes to mind, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. One of our popular episodes? Uh, one, because I still think it is, to this day, the greatest action film ever made. It's one of my. It's still one of my favorite episodes of all time. Um, I do look back fondly at the Saw retrospective, um, even though at the time we had a very difficult. I, it's more just because I'm glad I finally got to experience all of Saw because I went into Saw never seeing any of the films before. Obviously, I knew everything like the general gist of the films, but I was never interested in seeing the films. I feel like just that doing the saw retrospective there was just grueling. It was just a grueling slog overall. Like doing Not, an episode a week. It yeah, was exactly. a total slog. Episode a week doing every saw film every, you know, every week is very difficult. I think it's even more difficult than doing them like in a seven day period because it's you have like the whole week to think about like ah oh, next week I've got to watch the other saw film that's pretty much the same as that the one I just watched at least if you're binging them it's kind of like first of all you you have the whole process of like all of the sequels going through and you remember everything that happened between them if you're doing it week by week over 7 weeks uh, you kind of start to forget some things that happened in the first few fil- first few films. So, I would say that it was less about the films themselves than the fact that it was just very grueling. I will also say I did enjoy too when we did Dread. That's also another one of my favorite action films of all time, and I think it's great. And I wish to death that it would you know get a continuation. Um, I'm sure there's others, um, that you'll probably mention, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, for once, be Mr. Positive, and I'm looking back on the episodes where I left, you know, a movie like, yeah, that was really positive. I will say, oh, just came to me, Terminator Genesis. One of our first. One of our first, one of our longest, and that's a doozy, because that film was absolute garbage, and one of the worst (laughs) movies I've ever seen in my life. In theaters. And filmmakers are lucky I'm cheap as fuck and will never walk out on a movie, no matter how terrible it is, because I spent the goddamn money on it. And that's, that's almost as good. That RoboCop, the remake, which we also did as an audio commentary. Yeah. So I, just, I would... That was our um, year anniversary. Two-year, I think. Two... Was it? We did it this year, didn't we? Yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah, two-year anniversary. Um... um uh, yeah, that that's a fun one. That's that was a different experience for us in general because it's our first commentary. It was a first commentary, and those are fucking difficult. <laughs> that's why we don't do very many of them. Not not because not not difficult because um, like well, it's hard to it's, like, it's think of something like every you, you know. yeah yeah as a audio 
you have to in, in with not having the actual film audio available, you really have to have space to fill everything, and and it's it's difficult to to just have like constant running commentary, especially for a film that's very middling. RoboCop, you know, and even so, like I would say that it's not even one of those films that's bad where you can make fun of it. It's just like you're just left going like, why? Just well, no, why? I, I felt what? like when I was watching what? it with you. And our friend at the time, Dan in the theater, who took a shit you know, for <laughs> for about an hour through it. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think I had more to say when watching it than like the second time. It's like, what's there to say? Right. Yeah. It's like it's like I got it all out when I saw the film. Plus, it's difficult because we hadn't seen it in a while, and that oh, was our first mistake. Yeah. So you tried watching it while doing the audio commentary for the first time in like. Four or five years, but that's not. I can't. Pre- I can't like sit down. Prep no, I can't, no, you can't, I can't no. bring myself to sit down and watch that. Not like, one. Not one of those. Not one of those. <laughs> Maybe if we were doing the thing, I could prep for it. But well, yeah, I, you get to sit and enjoy and pick yeah. it apart. And RoboCop was just like, "Why? Why are you doing this to Paul Verhoeven? Why don't you remake one of his bad movies?" Yeah, yeah. Not Showgirls. Everybody loves Showgirls. Yeah, but I would say one of my favorite episodes is um. The, the My Bloody Valentine episode, the original. Oh. Because that was the time when I introduced you to it and you were like kind of receptive to it as a slasher film. There's a moose loose about the hoose. That was one of my favorites. We had a lot of fun with that. A lot of fun with the Canadian uh, lingo and things like that. Sorry. Sorry, Michael, my friend who uh, <laughs> works with me on com. But uh, yeah, hey, we did no, make... he he liked my impression. That's true. That's true. So I mean, yeah. No. Oh, the silent. When we, every time we do a Silent Night, Deadly Night. That's right. Oh, great. That's right. Warm it's... side of the door from the first film is one of my. That film is only like as throughout. That's one of the first episodes we did too, because we did that our first. Yeah, Christmas. it was like the yeah you thirteenth know, or fourteenth episode. Um, yeah. That's a, yeah. Great. I, that movie just like grows in my heart every time I think of it. Yeah. Same thing as Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. Not so much Part 3. No, Part 3 is is pretty bad and did not have much fun with that one for sure. Um, what are the other... Let's see. What what else did I have fun with? Um, well, I wouldn't say I had fun with it, but Batman v Superman, we got a lot of mileage out of. Because it's, it's, we fucking beat on that one in the... I would say probably a year... Later, after we saw it, we were still mentioning it in episodes. Like, you know what's funny? Oh, you know what? Don't, you don't do Batman v Superman. You know, you know what's funny, too? We beat on that. We It's the dead horse that we'll forever be beating here. But we hated Suicide Squad more than we hated Batman v Superman. We've gotten more jokes out of Batman v Superman. That's true. I, I don't know why, but yeah, we have. Uh, one thing that's kind of an interesting note in our uh, episodes is that at one point we did Fallout 4. Or one video game. Yeah, or one video game episode. <laughs> kind of a weird, like, now if anybody looked back through our 100 episodes, they'd be like, follow up. <laughs> Where did that come from? That was, I don't I don't know. That, that was, I was still kind of fun. I I'm mean, pretty we got sure a lot I'm, of mileage. I'm, I'm the one that suggested it because I was playing Fallout 4. Right, we were, like, playing it religiously at the time. Um, spoiler alert, I still have not beaten it because you know what? I lose interest. You got sick of it. it after a while. You should re- re- revisit that with an addendum and be like, actually, it's not as good as we... It's the whole, that's the whole fucking settlement building crap. Yeah. And constantly having to go and like then defend settlements. I don't care. Here's your Gatling turret. 
fucking defend against the super mutants yourself, you ungrateful Bostonians. I had, like, I'm sick and tired of, like, I'm in the middle of trying to do a mission for the Brotherhood, and, like, oh, no. It's annoying. Like, I, that's why I've never beaten it. Like, I've gotten, like, 125 hours into the game, and only up to, like, the Brotherhood just showing up, because I'm the person when it comes to RPGs. I nail out all, as many of the side quests as early as possible, because, one, they're always, especially in Bethesda games, always more fun than the main storyline. There's not a main storyline from a Bethesda game I can think of that's interesting. It's all about the side quests. Yeah, like Fall- yeah I agree. Like, yeah. Fallout 3, the main story? Okay, you got Liam Neeson. It's great. It sucks. It's the side quests that are fun. I yeah. const- me and our friend Matt constantly quote the mechanist and the antagonizer from that one quest where they t- the two people think they're a superhero and a supervillain. Yeah. We quote that all the time. I mean, I know New Vegas was done by Obsidian, which is why the main story's better, but, you know, the, the side quests are still... In the most part, the most fun of the game. Yeah. Um, Skyrim, which I, I, looking back now, I, I want to go back and play again. I want to I get the, you know, updated version and play it again. Because I love Skyrim. The story's garbage, though. I literally did everything in that game except the story. And when I finally, like, after 300 hours in, through, like, everything you could possibly do in the game, I finally hammered out the story. And I was like, yeah, that sucked. Yeah. That was terrible. Not worth it. That was not worth it at all. But the game, you know, but again, it's a great fun game because the side quests are fun. Everything else you can do in the world is fun. Same thing with Fallout 4. All the side stuff and, like, the exploring the bunkers. And I think that's where they missed out in Fallout 4. They don't have enough vaults. No, yeah, there's only a couple vaults in Like, Fallout 3 and Fallout New Vegas, two of the funnest things to do in that game are exploring the vaults and the backstories of the vaults and what, what, you know, experiments went on there. Fallout 4 is only, like, fucking three of them. It's like, well, you took one of the most exciting parts of the game. And you knew it. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, we got this cool settlement building thing and Mass Effect, like, dialogue engine. Like, you know what we should do? We should throw out to the to listeners, like, would you want to hear more uh, video game episodes? Because we, we've only done one of them. <laughs> no, I mean, it hasn't. Until Red... You know what? We'll do Red one. Red Dead Redemption when 2. When Red Dead yeah. Redemption 2 comes Which, my, right. I, I still my heart. I was looking on the PlayStation Store the other day. So I was checking to see how much Battlefield 1 Premium was. If it was still fifty fucking dollars, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, it is. Because um, you made me reinstall it because you were looking for friends to play, and I got sick of the game. But I have nothing really to play outside of that and Madden right now, which I bought Madden only because the Bills finally made the goddamn playoffs. But yeah, you know, it's a different story. But anywho, I was looking and I saw Red Dead Redemption Two like on the, the shop page, like hot new games coming out. Yeah, pre-order. I didn't. Pre- I haven't pre-ordered yet. I will because I, I I'm gonna get it. I have nothing but the most faith in the world in Rockstar. Um, but I saw on the page on the, the PlayStation shot, it says quarter four, 2018. I'm like, they delayed it again? Jesus. And then I looked online, it still says quarter one, quarter two, 2018. I was like, oh, but still my heart. But I'm huh. like, I think they'll probably... De- uh, they probably will get delayed. Probably till this fall, quarter three. Yeah. Because that's when GTA five came out. It ended up coming out in September. Yeah, probably will. Hey, one other thing that we did that uh, we've never really done before. TV specials. TV horror. We did that, uh, I think it was like episode nine or something like that. Never never come back to it. Uh, we talked about like Walking Dead. Um, Ash vs. Ash Evil. Evil Dead. That was an interesting episode too because it was a branch out from what we normally do because we normally do one t- uh, one movie a episode. Unless it's... Unless, yeah, unless European, it's like a re- retrospective or something. Well, I was going to say European and... Uh... 
Vegas vacation. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that was a little branch out, and we did uh, sort of a whole rundown of TV shows. And we di- we did a different one, too, for the Hall- first Halloween special, where we did all of our favorite films for Halloween. So, um, I, and in some ways, those are fun episodes because we don't get, we don't have to, like, watch a specific film and go into it in detail. We can go into multiple films at once. So it would be fun to return to something like that in uh and the next episode, like if we were doing like our favorite, like killer animal <laughs> films and our favorite, you know, slasher films and stuff like that. We already did that. It's called long weekend at Mako. That's true. <laughs> um, we did a nineties slasher month. That was awesome. Oh, we, that's our best intro. I that think. was a fun one. That's the now I'll take all the full credit for yeah. that, coming up with that one. But that's yeah, no, that's our. You know, um, I think it's it, almost about time to do an eighty slasher month because you can't do nineties. You, you can't just do a ninety slasher. Well, we've month. already did that, kind of. I mean, we're, we did a few, but I mean, we for, yeah, but we. Basically I can did. think of a ton more that we can do. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the I burning, the mutilator, just before dawn. I inv- see. There's three right there thrown out. I oh, mean, absolutely. Another one people probably don't um, know because I don't think it shows up on our feed is when we did Friday Thirteenth Part One through Three for. Uh, yeah, it doesn't show up on our feed because it's not technically part of our show. Um, because it's part of the J Movie Talk podcast. But yes, we did. We did Friday the 13th, parts one through three for J Movie Talk podcast. For his Friday the 13th retrospective. Absolutely. Check it out. Um, we got a lot of, we got a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah. Still up on the J Movie Talk podcast, uh, show. So definitely check that out. Um, we'll give him a shout as we, uh, when we post this episode. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. And again, that's another episode that's a little bit different because, we did three movies in one. That was tough because that takes a lot of preparation to do a three movie episode. <laughs> and not like that, by the time we get to the third one, it's like, what's yeah. okay? Now the eighties have been gone full swing. Yeah. You can tell by the outfits they're wearing. I, yeah, you know. All right, what's your uh, least favorite episode that we've done, or like the movie? I, I would say we, uh, we love all of our episodes. <laughs> I'm saying the movie. Okay. It's pretty easy, actually. What do you got? Mako's one. Okay, all right. <laughs> that was the a, whole. The whole oh, experience was miserable. Mako's one of the worst films I think we've ever done. That was a tough one because um, there's not much to say about it. It's just like, well, it's bad. <laughs> um, Batman v Superman right. and Suicide Squad. All right, those. Yeah. Um, and I, I know another one that you're not saying. And I'll pro- and I'll go stereotypical and say Terminator Genesis. Okay, all There's right. A- I know another one that you're not saying that you're gonna agree with right away. Leprechaun. But we had fun with that. No, we like, had fun on the episode. But no, I know, but I know. No, watching the movie, no, watching the movie, it was not fun. But with the actual episode itself, because yeah. I'm also thinking about like my tone too. Because okay, sure, like okay, because we did Troll Two early on. Yep, and. It's actually one of our great episodes too, because we got a, yeah we got a you know uh, actress retweet yeah so yep. made us feel special that's right but um uh, but no like so like Troll Two is like that's yeah, like an enjoyable bad film but like Mako and Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman and Terminator Genesis are just they were bad movies I got to have fun ripping them but at the same time it was like the whole experience is just like a miserable yeah just like ugh. 
if I had to think about the Saw Saw retrospective, too, as much as I like it, and the fact that I did it, looking back on the whole slog of two months of getting through and the totality of it, by the end, I was tired of the films. I, like, by five, I was like, can we wrap this? Like, this is, this is going on too long. It's tough. It's tough to do a, a film a week like that, for sure. Yeah, but I would say probably my least favorite to watch was Leprechaun. Um... Leprechaun 2 at least had the great, yeah. great, great uh, music and Michael McDonald. Michael McDonald, for sure. Fucking really elevates it. Cameo. Yep. We've got Leprechaun 3 to come, too. Yeah, this year. This and we've got Leprechaun 3, so that'll be fun. And then we're moving into just gems of territory for the next St. Paddy's Days with uh, Leprechaun uh, in, the hood? in space, Leprechaun is in, in the, the hood. hood. Is in the hood first or space? Um, I Wouldn't think you... it's Leprechaun in Space, and then I think it's Leprechaun in the Hood, and then Leprechaun in the Hood too. I think, if I remember correctly. Poor Warwick so. Davis. Yeah. Just, just take that idiot broad money and go. <laughs> just get out while you can. <laughs> Hang out with Carl Pilkington. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about our retrospective before we take a break and do a quick uh, recap of what we drank today? No, I think that's about it. I think it. that's it. I, yeah. We covered everything. So if you, if any of the things that we brought up doesn't sound familiar to you, go back in our check it out. history and check them out. Yeah. And it's fun to to go back and see like the early episodes. We were really trying to find our way. Um, the middle episodes, we were, we had kind of found out like uh, how we do things, but some, like some of the quality was not as good and things like that. Um so it's just interesting to go back and, and see what we've done and how we did it. So And how we've, we've grown. How we've grown. And, and if we haven't grown, let us know. <laughs> at, uh, Blood you guys Black... still suck. Yeah, that's right. At bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know. <laughs> if you don't like what we're doing, let us know so we can change it. Um, all right. Uh, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk pretty quickly uh, about the beer that we've got on the show. So stay with us. All right. So what do we got on the show today for beer? You brought it. It's a beer we haven't had in a long time. Long time. Very long time. Yeah. God, it's got to be like seven years now, actually. Well, we're in 2018. Uh, we graduated in 2011. So six years. <laughs> so, yeah. About so six, six years. Because yeah. Sarah was still in college. Yeah. we ha- um, It's a beer I got because in the early days of starting to, you know, branch out into... Fanciful craft beers and whatnot. Um, I saw in Beer Advocate, Duval was rated at the time, and I don't know if it still is or not, like the highest rated beer on there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I gotta try this. And luckily, our one store happened to have a four pack of it. It was like $32 for that four pack. Crazy. But I got it anyway. And then we had it. We were not uh, feeling it that much. Didn't like it at all. So our one friend described it, it tastes like pepper, banana, onion juice. Yeah. Now, six years later, we are much more knowledgeable, when it, especially when it comes to Belgian-style beers. Refined beer drinkers. Developed a more sophisticated palate. And I thought, you know, it's a special episode. Let's do something special. We'll try the Duval. That's right. Because Duval also owns, I don't know if people know this or not, but they own one of our local breweries around here, Amagang. Yeah. They own Amagang, which specializes in Belgian-style beers. And you can definitely taste the influence within Amagang's beer and, and Duval. They mm-hmm. definitely match in a lot of ways, especially with like the 
the it's Belgian style, hop yeah, the, and the Belgian strong and, style. Yeah, yeah, they 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 get it just right. So yeah, I bought a nice seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle of it because it doesn't have the ounces on it. Um, and that's what we have for today. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because, like you said at the time, we really weren't into it at all. Um, no, I, I remember being very much like, a, "What? What am I drinking?" Yeah, there's part of it that's like definitely you definitely still get um, sort of a, a banana-y, fruity flavor to it. Definitely still a peppery flavor. But what really struck out to me at this time was the sweetness of it. I didn't really get as much as a banana note this time around. No, not not as heavily as a, a as the first time that I remember having it. I think the banana actually comes from just the Belgian the malts and, malts yeah. uh, in in the in the beer is that it kind of tastes banana-y. Um, and now that we've been more accustomed to Belgian style, um, the banana is kind of like downplayed, and that's almost why I can now drink Hefeweizens too. I can drink Hefeweizens. Um, I haven't really gone out of my way right? outside of UFOs, which I, I, like their Hefeweizen isn't really banana. So no, I would, I would totally. I, say. I accidentally had one be, um, when I was on vacation last year, uh, and I got uh, this cloud splitter, and mm. um, it was actually turned out to be Hefeweizen. Yeah, you it was said it was supposed to be yeah. Oktoberfest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so they called it. Yeah, um, but but like uh, I I thought it was drinkable. It was. Um, you know, it doesn't bother me as much anymore. And I think it's just because of the refinedness and, and just having multiple beers like that, you kind of get used to it. And, you know, on your palate, it's not as, uh, I would say it's not as um, affecting as it used to be. So uh, for the Duval, I think it's pretty good. It's not my favorite style of beer in general anyway. Um, so I was, um, I would say I was slightly impressed with it. Um, I think that Duval does a, a pretty good job of making the Belgian strong golden ale. Um, and it's very flavorful. It has a nice head to it. Um, you know, it's very like champagne like, which is why it comes in that 750 milliliter bottle. It doesn't have the cork in it, it though. It anymore. does not have a cork anymore. It no. used to. It's, it's weird too because the Albuquerque bottles, those big, you know, champagne style bottles, they still do have the cork in them. So why Duval's just got the pop top now? I don't know, but it did used to come in, you know, with shit, you know, with the cork and yeah. But it's definitely a heavy eight percent. Can you I feel, feel it, it. Yeah. <laughs> for sure? Uh, and we did start out with a Browns Black Cherry Stout too, which is also an eight percent. I didn't feel so. the eight percent on that so much, but yeah. But no, I will. I will say I like it, and I'm glad I revisited it because it's actually so, I really enjoy it. I think it's um, good. Yeah, a bel a Belgian strong ale is kind of more like an up. Up the ante saison, like it takes you know. It is, yeah, basic. Yeah, a, a saison is light, fruity, but yet it's got that Belgian malt to it, which isn't like bready, but it's you know again, like you said, fruity, clovey, peppery, and it takes that you know the refreshingness of a saison and it ups the alcohol and ups the flavor a little bit on it too to give it a bolder, stronger profile. Sure, and. I will say, because I love Saison's, Almagang's Hennepin is one of my favorite beers. And I will say, I greatly enjoy it. You're right, it does taste a lot sweeter than I remember it. Uh, even though it's got those peppery notes to it, it's still pretty sweet tasting. And a very enjoyable beer. Uh, I gave it on untapped a four and a quarter. I thought it was really good. Now, would I go out of my way to buy it all the time and drink it as like a nice refreshing beer? No. 
because it's eight and a half percent alcohol. So. It's eight and a half, and it's too expensive for that. Um, you could get Amagang and really get a six pack of it for the same price. Exactly, and, 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 and be having basically, I mean, a little bit lighter, but still uh, the same flavor profile for the same price mm. to get more for it. But yeah, I, I'm not like farmhouse ales aren't really my favorite types of beers, but I, I do enjoy them at times. Like they're, they're good for specific times. And, and I got to say that drinking this Duval, um, I got through it very quickly and yeah, we can, I, we can, I enjoyed we, it quite a bit more than the first time I had it. We killed that bottle. Oh, I won't absolutely. say the only, the only downfall of it is, um, the head on it grows ridiculously quick. I barely poured any to top my glass off, and it ballooned from like three quarters of the glass to just overflowing yep. and spilling all over the place. So that's oh. that's the only thing. Great, we didn't have the tulip glass that you're supposed to have with it, but I don't really believe in that nonsense, you know, <laughs> that much. Anyway, I'm not. That... It wasn't in the in the glass long enough to warm where you would need <laughs> the tulip style. So. No, I, I, but I, like, I, I would definitely get it again. You know, the first time we had it, I would, I was like, no, <laughs> never getting Duval again. You know, not, not trying that again. But, but now, as a refined taster, I would say that it's definitely one of the better beers that I've had. And especially if you're looking for something different, you don't want a, an IPA anymore. You don't want just like the regular seasonal beers. Grab yourself a Duval. Get yourself a nice Belgian strong ale. That's right, and it doesn't have like it doesn't have to be Duval because that's expensive. It's on the the high end side of getting a Belgian style beer, but get yourself an Amagang or you know something a, a, akin to it that you know may not be specifically Duval, but is within like the saison style or something like that. Very good. Anything else you want to bring up for beer talk before we head right into the thing? No, I think we should get into the thing. I think we should get into the thing. Got a lot to talk about. That's right. That's right. All right. So uh, 1982's The Thing from John Carpenter. First of all, very important that we do this because it is John Carpenter's birthday. Uh, It was yesterday. And, um, you know, I think he would be proud of us to to cover The Thing rather than some of his other films that he does. Um, And for one thing, too, I've... I love the thing, but I haven't revisited it that often. Um, I watched it for the first time a while ago, and then I've seen it a couple times here and there. Um, one time when Scream Factory re-released their uh, their Blu-ray with a 4K transfer, um, and then now again. But I would say that I still have not seen it enough. Like I haven't seen it as much as Halloween um, or The Fog. One of those styles, mm. you know, those those other films in, in John Carpenter's filmography. I, I would agree. I, have, I As much as I enjoy the film, I haven't seen it nowhere near as much as, say, Halloween or Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just... And it's, it's not for... I wouldn't say that it's because of, like, any conscious de- decision that I've made. It's just more so that... It's not played that often on TV it, for it, one. It's not played that often, um... I'll be honest, I never really caught it when I was a kid or anything like that. It wasn't something that, you know, you would see on TV very often. Probably partially because of the special effects in it are very hard to, like, get on TV without doing some cuts. And I actually don't think this film would be that hard to censor, really. Well, I think... There's only a couple where I'd be like, okay, you could... I think maybe, like, back when we were kids, 
censoring was a little bit more intense. You know, now some of the other uh, channels like FX or something like that would probably get away with playing it as is, but without, you know, obviously censoring some of the, uh, the curse words, but um, I think maybe back then, you know, for whatever reason, or maybe it was the licensing issue. I don't, I don't know, but we just never really got played. I never really saw it on, on TV as much. Um, so it was actually kind of late that I saw it. I think it was in college that I saw it actually. I think it was, uh, probably 2008 that I actually saw the thing. Uh, so kind of late. And, um, I remember even back then loving the film, loving the paranoia that it creates. Um, because the films, I would say the special effects are, they really pop. And that's probably one of the best things about the thing that people remember. But one of the more important elements of the theme is the theme of paranoia that really comes out because of the small area that John Carpenter gives the audience. We're working in like a small Antarctic base. There's no one else around. It's very clear that, you know, if they want to get out of here, they got to take a helicopter. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, they're stuck there and that's pretty much it. That's, that's all there is. Um, and as you go through the film now, I, I noticed some of those details of like, this is how fucking stranded they are. Like one thing that sticks out to me is that they have to, they had to give their own blood and keep it in a fridge just in case something happens to them where they lose blood and they're like, well, we got to give you a transfusion. Well, we got your blood on, mm. you know, in the fridge. And that's how stranded they are. There's, there's nothing, you know, if anything else happens to them, they're fucked. And that's pretty much it. Um, so that really stands out to me as, as in terms of like the small details that give the atmosphere of how stranded they really are. Well, um, you get that just from the opening with the helicopters chasing the husky throughout, you know, just trying, the panning over the, of just, like, just showing, you know, how. You know, the vast, you know, wasteland, you know, frozen ice land that is Antarctica. Yeah, the emptiness of it all, you know, and just panning over and you just see snow and snow and snow and snow and snow. Mm -hmm. And finally you get to a base, you know, as they're running, as the dog runs through just miles of snow. Um, Yeah, I think that they do a good job of immediately setting up, you know, how out there and how distant this area is from the rest of civilization. And it's, that becomes an important idea too, because as we see from the, um, actually very sophisticated computer that they have for 1982 on this, uh, Antarctic base, um, which can calculate all kinds of things like the, the rate that, uh, cell growth would occur and, uh, things like that. And even, Except um, the one thing that blows my mind is it accepts just commands like type in just a random command like an Alexa (laughs) would have now and it uh, responds. But uh, what it shows is that, you know, if this thing ever gets to a populated area, the uh, entire population would be infected in like. I can't remember how, how 27,000. Yeah, it's like 2,700 hours or. No, 27,000. 27,000. Yeah, because. It's over the span of, yeah. It's over a, a... Now, what do you find more hard to believe? That? And the computer be able to generate all that information? Or the fact in RoboCop they sell, like, that uh, soft operating system? 
like a billion copies within day one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, I remember you being really miffed at that. Yeah, right. No, I, I think... Um, or no, that's, no, it's Genesis. Yeah, it's Genesis. Genesis, yeah. I think that... Um, well, I I can I can kind of go along with it within this film itself with the the operating system. You know, they they're working on some mission within Antarctica. It's never really no what, the, what they what they're doing there. We don't know. It's we just never a, really get a yeah. It's just a U.S. base down there. It's like and it, as you say, there's a hodgepodge of people they got it's going like the on. Fucking down there. A team down there. You got you know. Guy on roller skates who likes the Stevie Wonder. Another guy who likes to smoke the doobies. The doctor, you know, the pilot. The you know, there's all they're very much a clusterfuck of just yeah. There's like, a guy that apparently is a part of a motorcycle gang. Yeah, just like what? Oh, he's apparently like some scientist down there. What? Why is he wearing a jean jacket cut off and like you know, two doctors? Uh, well, he just you know yeah. whatever you know security office. You yeah. Know. Very, uh, very top secret mission that even the the viewers don't really get to to know about, and then again, but that's fine because you you really don't even know. You just need to know they're there, they're a group, and you know they're doing something sciency down there. Do but... you think that there is the idea that they have already kind of there's an understanding that there may be something there? Is that is that the because we get like the Norwegian team is there too, so. There's some. There's got to be something there. There's something that they're working on specifically. Well, no, because like a lot of major countries have bases down in Antarctica. I think to like just do scientific research on. So like you can learn stuff from Antarctica and see how that maybe yeah translates to the rest of the world. I guess that's the yeah. vibe I got from it. I maybe mean, they're just interested in like ten thousand year old ice and what that harbors. You well, know, what, obviously now it would be you know yeah warming. That would be uh. I guess I'm just saying that because McCready, whose name is literally Mac Reddy, seems very open and just ready to go. No bullshit. <laughs> yeah, when when this whole thing starts going, um, because he's really the one that sets everything in motion. He becomes the main um, leader of the group. And he's just a pilot, and yeah, he really has no, I would say, no governmental bearing on how the operation occurs, but you don't really know. We don't even really know who is kind of in like, if there is, I don't think there really is anyone. designated. I I guess I would say the, the, the one that probably has the most authority, maybe child's has the most authority. No, because he's just the fucking guy that totes around like the flamethrower. I don't know, but it seems like he has an author. Uh, he is an authority figure. I would figure like the doctor. Yeah, maybe the doctor does seem. Uh, I would say Blair, probably yeah, Blair, Blair, as the doctor is probably le- maybe leading the research. Um, but it is interesting how, like, ready <laughs> McCready is to just go to town on whatever's happening, and he's. He, it, that's the funny thing is that he doesn't really. There's no like thinking twice. There's no, like, sitting down and contemplating, like, what am I saying? There's a fucking alien species that... He's just like, I don't fucking know. Like, yeah, this <laughs> yeah. is what apparently it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, because if you think about it... Which it, you can totally see Kurt Russell doing, too, just being like, I... Yeah, look, this, we saw a spaceship for God's. I don't know what the fuck you want from Right, us. exactly. Kind of like, hard the process. You, you saw a spaceship. You saw a giant ice block that apparently had something in it unearthed at the Norwegian compound. I don't know. You saw tentacles and shit popping out of a dog. I don't know. Fucking burn it. Um, 
But I do love that though, because there's no time to waste on, you know, in some other films, you'd have characters who just sit around thinking like, no, wait, no, it can't be. I don't believe it. I can't. No, no. McCready's just like, take it at face value and do whatever the fuck you have to do to survive. Um, and I think that's what makes, uh, McCready as a character, one of those guys that you really root for because he's kind of an everyman character and he's kind of an audience fill in too, because he doesn't really know what's going on, but he's one of those people who would be in the audience saying like, don't fucking go into the basement. Don't make that stupid decision. Just, you know, just do what you got to do and do whatever you need to, to survive. He does that. That's, that's his character in a nutshell of being that person. Who's like, take no prisoners. So he's just being snake plissken. Yeah, basically. Snake, exactly. Escape from Antarctica. Right. It's like, take snake plissken. Now he's been reassigned to <laughs> Antarctica he brought a couple of gang members with him from New York, <laughs> and now they're working on an Antarctic base, uh, and now they're dealing with, you know, supernatural science fiction aliens from outer space that have crash-landed 10,000 years ago, and they've hibernated in the ice. Um, what do you think about the whole, like, alien element to it with the spaceships that are very... The spaceship, I feel, is a very generic part of, like, um, aliens. Like, it's not a... It's not like an alien spaceship that you would see in Alien, you know. It's more of a very generic generic 50s saucer UFO UFO thing. No, I like that. You like that? It's like a nice call, but I love the opening of the fact you see the, you know, the UFO crashing into Earth and then how, as you know, the thing as the intro and as you described the effect of how they achieved, you know, the, the special thi- effect yeah, yeah, of, of actually, you know, it's a very practical effect of it's great. It looks awesome. It's amazing. It's like, this is going to be a good film. It's kind of like in the original Halloween, how with the, you know, the pumpkin and the slow, you know, panning out and, you know, just slowly and slow, you know, it's great. It works well. It's totally fa- It's minimalistic. Yeah, and, and, to- and the thing is, too, that it's actually not minimalistic because it actually took a lot of work to do the thing, you know, the the peeling of the letters, practically peeling off as an effect. But it is, you know, as it plays out, it, it seems very practical. And minimalistic. Yeah. yeah, but it looks great. It, it looks ap- – it, it hooks you right in, I'd say. I, I think it's a good example of what's to come, too. For the special effects, because they're all very top notch, realistic and practical of, you know, something that you would not expect nor get to. You wouldn't get today. No, no, no. I mean, there are a couple films that obviously emulate trying to do those special effects and they don't even come close to the range that the thing has. Still watching it today, it astounds me some of the things that they actually achieve for special effects because... Um, one scene in particular that stands out to me is that first kennel scene that you see with the dog because the dog's face is the, like, looks like the real dog's face. And then, and then all of a sudden it splits open into, you know, the thing's tentacles and, and, uh, like the fake dog snout that's in. And it's amazing to me because it looks so real that it's like originally the real dog splitting open into the, the thing itself. Um, and I think that that is something that just really stands out and brings the reality home because those practical effects 
are you're not they're not CGI effects. They're not easy to just look at and be like, well, that's fake. There there is an element of reality to them, even though watching now, obviously, um, certain things, um, you can just pick out and say like, well, that's plastic latex or you know stuff like that. But even at the same time, as you're watching, you, you kind of get sucked into the reality of it. Um, and I think that works too because of um, not only just how good everything looks, but the animation of it all. Because if you're talking about some of the um, the more intricate transformations, like that first kennel scene with the dog transforming, or later on as um, the thing kind of generates into three different like movable parts. There's a lot of moving parts to this whole um, special effect work. So you got a dog's head, but then you got other things popping out from it that are also moving. Or you have, you know, the body of the thing, which then opens up to reveal another head that pops out of it. They're just, it's just very much... um, it's it's such an intricate process that it kind of is amazing how much they were able to achieve with just practical effects and i that that carries over now even um i was amazed at just seeing all of the things that they're able to do with it and i you know i don't want to attribute the thing's success now just just to practical effects because i think the story itself is just very compelling in anyway but the special effects really help elevate this film from something that would be a really good story to something that's an amazing, you know, piece Work of, of art, yeah. piece of uh, art in itself. Um, speaking of that, though, w- what do you think of the story as a as a whole? Um, this film is an hour and forty eight minutes. We've talked at length in other films about how they really could use some editing. Um, in general, it kind of seems like to us, you know, a, a post 90 minute film is too long. Uh, what do you think about like the, uh, hour and 48 minute film here with the storyline? Um, I, I mean, it's a very basic storyline, very, you know, bare bones, but that's fine because it's not the overarching plot. Isn't the main point of the film. It's the themes and then the, you know, the character interaction, and then how they respond to the situation that's at hand. Um, I don't really think, though it is at first like a slow build, like the the intro of like the flying helicopter chasing the husky does take quite a while. It's not, it, none of the film feels like it's terribly paced. I think the slow build really helps instill that paranoia of who could possibly be assimilated from the thing. Who is, who is the thing and and the slow build too is necessary because there's so many characters there there's quite a few characters in here um that are situated at the base so there's a, that need to kind of establish all of the roles of those characters and then kind of you know i wouldn't say the thing really develops those characters beyond more of a like what i would say a two-dimensional aspect to it but at least we do get the um, the, their names, you can kind of associate with those people and know a little bit about them. And I think that's probably one of the more important elements of that, um, developing that at the start and the, the first part of that story, which is 
I would say a little bit slow, but at least you do get the build of those characters and you also get to see the base itself. So you get, you know, how big it is, um, the scale of it really, I should say, because it's really not that big. And so it's important to establish that scale before you actually have things occur um, so that we can revisit those scenes later and then see like how they're blowing up all of the base and leaving really nowhere else to hide um, for the thing or people who would succumb to, you know, negative 40 degree temperatures in the Antarctic. So I think all of that at the beginning of the film is really important um, just to establish the reality of the situation, um, make sure that they are developing characters as much as they can for a, you know, film with so many characters that it, it does have. Um, and then really establish McCready as a main character as well, because um, at the beginning, he's a part of the rescue mission for the, the dog, but it's not really clear at first who the main character of the film is. So definitely having to establish McCready as the main leader of the group uh, is something that they have to do in the thing as well. Um, I think that probably, I, I think an hour and 48 minutes is pretty, um, I don't know. I, I think it's, 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 it's a good running time. I don't think that it really overstays its welcome. And as you get into the film itself, um, I think it really sucks you in. So as it, I, I don't think that once you get pr- probably past the first 20 minutes, um, the rest of the film kind of just moves and you don't really think about how long it is or how long it's taking to get through it. Even though John Carpenter's pace, I would say is pretty languid. It doesn't, uh, it, you know, it, it, it does use a couple of, um, key elements like bridging certain scenes with, uh, the things, um, murders or whatever you want to call them, uh, transformations. Um, they, he does bridge the, the, exposition gap with those scenes but for the most part it kind of moves organically as you would expect they figure out that there's something among them they decide to uh you know try to track it down and then the processes for figuring out how to uh decipher who is the thing and who's not um i think that uh that all comes out within the first 20 minutes. And then once you're through that, you really can kind of glide through it. So I think like, uh, with that, um, that really sets you up for the paranoia aspect of the film, wherein, you know, after you meet those characters and you kind of get a feel for them, uh, you see how over time, these characters are beginning to distrust each other. Really a main element of the film, uh, is that, you know, there's, they're working in such close proximity and they realize that this thing is kind of contagious. That element of paranoia and being so close together, um, really comes out and, and creates the horror of the, of the film, even, I guess, even more so than like the realistic special effects that it has. Yeah. And I, I really, I really do enjoy the whole dynamic that's created, uh, amongst the characters as they try to basically try to sort out who, you know, 
who possibly could have been infected and how they're going to kind of deal with that. And, you know, the eventual different types of tests they think of, of how to try to prove who, you know, if someone's become the thing or not. I think it's all really cool and inventive. I also, too, really like when they go to the the Norwegian base to see, you know, see what happened there. And you see the burned, disfigured, r- mangled bodies that look, you know, yeah. human, but yeah. they're very, you know, deformed and twisted in a way and melded, too, in a way that it's like, how how would that be physically possible? What, you know, a lot of intrigue, like, from that alone is, you know... That the scene of McReady and a couple of the uh, others and the team there going to the Norwegian base and seeing that kind of really spark like your interest. Like, so what is going on? Yeah, and Carpenter kind of like um, he hides it a bit because you don't really get a good glimpse of the bodies that are burned. You kind of get a glimpse from like. Well, they bring they bring them back to the base. Yeah, yeah. But at first, like when you're at the base itself, when you're at the Norwegian base, you kind of just see like the weird deformities of their legs or their limbs, and you see a little bit of the burnedness, and that kind of piques your interest because you're like, well, it doesn't really look human to me. Like, what what actually happened to it? And I think again, that's just another area of of setting things up because Carpenter does a lot of setting up at the beginning of the film, almost to the point where if you're not patient, you might check out. You might be like, well, it's kind of running a little long. I don't know really what's going on with this. Um, but sticking with it really gives you a lot to work with because of all of the characters that you have and the paranoia that that brings to the space that they're, that they're um, trying to figure out You know who is actually the thing and who's not. And it, it brings up some really ingenious methods of figuring out who is the thing. Like, And it creates probably one of the most compelling scenes in the film where McCready's testing all of their blood. That's probably one of the most well-known moments of the thing because it does have that element of surprise to it because you really don't know what to expect as he's testing the blood. Is he just going to burn blood and mm. what, what's going to happen with it? What, you know... Because we don't really know how the thing operates at that point. He's telling us that the thing is kind of like a singularity and it it knows when uh, other parts of it are in pain. We really don't know what that entails or how that works. Um, And the the biggest surprise there... Well, it's more that, uh, you know, certain aspects of the... If the thing assimilates and, like, certain aspects are taken away from that, it becomes its own entity, its own animal, its own thing. So, his thought process, if you take some blood, and now that is separate from the thing itself, it's become its own entity, and therefore, you know... It'll react. It re- react and try to survive, whereas if you just cut, uh, you know, cut me, or cut you, you know, we're just cutting tissue, so we'll wince in pain, but the blood's not gonna react it's not going to try to you know survive like we would try to survive if you you know somebody was trying to cut you yeah i think it's an ingenious method and it really sets up um a compelling moment where you're testing and and this is where carpenter excels because he's not really waiting on this blood test 
to, you know, obviously have it obviously be the last person that he tests. It actually occurs right in the middle of testing. It's something that you would just not expect because it happens, you know, one person's not the thing. It's clearly. I almost think, though, too, McGreedy knew. Yeah, it could be. The way, just because the way he's kind of portraying the film and, you know, the fact that he's like, you know, no nonsense, no bullshit and kind of, you know, damn the torpedoes full steam ahead. I almost have a feeling like he has inklings already on like who, you know, who, who's probably been infected and assimilated. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, so with that, so with that, I think going into that, I think he knew one or two, like he already had in his head, had an shot, idea, which, which one of them we do know because the, I can't remember his name, but he's mainly the security guard of the facility. He says he's saving him for last. Cause he thinks he's, you know, he's, you know, right. Been assimilated. But I also think at the same time too, he, even though his like, you know, they frame it in a way because his, you know, flamethrower is not working and gets, you know, another member killed when the thing does show itself in that scene. I do think he kind of had like a, like he kind of had something going on. Yeah. It's interesting too, because, um, like it does set up some interesting elements of like, distrust and um like how do you really know if you're even the thing um because you see like a lot of people getting their blood tested and they're kind of nervous like they're nervous to even have their blood tested because they're not sure like will it react and that sets up an interesting like existential element too of like would you even know like, would you know if you're not really I yourself think, at that I, point? I think you would. Well, I, I you think... Th- yeah, but I think one of the most, um, the telling moment is when Windows has his blood tested because he's almost holding his breath and then exhales when it doesn't do anything as though, like, he was really not sure if it would actually react. And there's that, that whole, like, existential element of being like, well, maybe I am infected and I don't know it. That's kind of interesting too. Like an early stage, and you have been... exactly like you. You're not really sure because they do have that at one time too, where the one guy kind of reacts, and um, I don't even remember his name, but he's one of the um, the guys that would have had. Uh, I, I I think actually McCready gives him like a, a duty, and he reacts with like stomach pain. As though he really didn't know that he was infected until almost alien, like it it left like an embryo or something in him, um, which is kind of interesting because we don't really, besides that scene, we don't really see anybody else becoming infected and then getting sort of a sickness from it. They they're really just infected as we see them, or they're a dead body that becomes you know, infected with the the thing and, and then starts to do its process change. But um, I thought that was pretty interesting how, you know, some people may not know that they're infected and they're like kind of holding your breath like, well, maybe I will be infected and I don't even know it. And then what will happen to me? I think that just fits the whole paranoia theme. So, like, yeah, they, like because, again, by, you know. By the time the thing is roaming around, nobody's in the right mind. Everybody's. So I think even. I, don't know. I still kind of have a hard time if the thing assimilated into you, you wouldn't know that you were assimilated. I think, you know, the thing's assimilated into you. Yeah, so no. It's, so it would, obviously, because it's the thing, it would know it's the thing, and it's trying for its survival. I think it's more just people are paranoid, and they think, again, like, 
I think it's more just like they think maybe they could be. Right, yeah. But again, it's, that's no, a, I, it's a red herring. They're not really, but it's just that like, I like, because they don't really understand and know how this alien creature works. And Yeah, no, that's how I, that's how I imagine it. It's not that they really would be infected, but that they are concerned that they might be because they don't know how it works. So it's, it adds an even more, a bigger element of paranoia that you don't even know if you can trust yourself. You, you don't even know if you can trust your body. Because you could possibly be infected with it, and you don't know, um, which I think is pretty scary. I mean, that's a that's a scary element that you don't really know if you have control over your yourself, um, and that's something that does bother people. Um, and I think something that again comes out with what we were talking about previously, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There is one scene where um, one of the characters is in the process of turning into the thing, you know, and you can see that he's kind of, he has the same body type, except his hand is turned into like a thing, like claw, mm-hmm. veiny claw. And he lets out this scream. That's direct there, from yeah, invasion yeah. of the body snatchers. Uh, does seem sort of like a, an homage to the invasion of the body snatchers in that sense. But I think that it, it does come from that sense of like, there's always the possibility that you can be corrupted, that you can, um, you wouldn't know it, but you're being corrupted into being a a thing or a a body snatcher. It's pretty uh pretty interesting stuff, and I think that's really where the thing's most compelling elements lie is is in you know the paranoia of it all. But it does have a lot of fun scenes too, like the one guy that insists on roller skating around the uh the whole compound. The cook, yeah. Who you, you said, you know, hasn't really learned yet because they've been in Antarctica that the 70s are over. <laughs> I know. It's 82 and like, oh, roller disco still a thing. It's like, no, that, that died. Stevie pretty- Wonder and roller disco. Yeah, yeah. That, that died pretty quick. Unfortunately, yeah, they haven't they haven't gotten a memo or anything. So he's going to come back to the Amer- America and just be right, roller skating yeah. around. And people are going to be, people are gonna be like, what are you do- dude, yeah. what are you doing? That, that died a long time. I know, and he's like, "Oh, I've been practicing on a <laughs> on a base for four years. I can't believe that it's it's over with already." I like Kurt Russell losing in chess to his computer, and he opens up the circuits and dumps his scotch into it. Like, "Hey, fuck you!" Yeah, I mean <laughs> just... that as a as an opening scene, like that's immediately you're like, "Do I want to root for this guy?" <laughs> he just basically destroyed an entire computer system. That everybody else could use. <laughs> by I mean, to be fair, it wasn't his little sh- his personal because he gets his own little shack. But true. But, but even still, like, no, you're right. But I then, can't imagine again, how that expensive is, that would have been at the time. Let's say, but then again, you think about it too, Kurt Russell. How often is Kurt Russell like the like like you know overly likable? He's you know very. Yeah, you know, for the most part, he's standoffish. Yeah, you know, he's more of a character that you're hesitant to like. You yeah, like I, him, but yeah, it's like, I shouldn't like him. Yeah. It's, and it's not just in this film. It's like in all of this, like, you know, in the Snake Plissken or, you know, in Tombstone. He's always very much kind of, you know, in yeah. bi- especially in like, especially in Big Trouble in Little China. He's, you know, cowering, you know, whiny bitch. But he was like, oh, God, you can't help but root for him. You know, he's just. Yeah. I mean, I think in here he's more so the gruff standoffish guy who you're like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like him, but I respect him. Yeah. You know, and I think that's probably how the crew feels too. It's like, well, you know, he's kind of an asshole, but he takes no, but, sh- he, yeah. but he, he's getting stuff done. So, you know, we'll, we'll follow him. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think that probably. Well, at the same time, his leadership is very tentative. Like at when the thing starts attacking, they're very much, very quick to be like, well, "Why the fuck are you leading? You very well could be the thing too," you know. And gets you know thrown under the bus, locked out, and you know basically tries. You know they try to kill him because they think he's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a. Uh... It shows like how smart he is, though, because like he immediately goes <laughs> goes to the dynamite. And he's and, like, he's like, we'll all die. I don't care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll all die. And and at that point, you realize that he understands the scope of the what's happening. Like, you know, we can't allow this to leave. Well, at the same time, going back to like kind of thing, like the thing could be that smart and be that self. True. So you know, you could almost argue like maybe he is the thing, and like he's smart and like. Well, they'll never, you know. They, yeah. They won't think, you know, I'm the one, ru- you know, running around. If I'm the one, like, I'm going to blow this place up. I think the best idea from John Carpenter was that you really, you literally have no way of knowing. There's no, like, markings. There's no, like, if I examine this person enough, I'll see that they're the thing. Nope. It's literally, if they've had enough, if the thing has had enough time to assimilate and copy the cells of the host then you will not know who the thing is but that does open up a good question of whether the thing can actually copy like memory which you mentioned during the film because in some ways it does seem like the the thing does copy memory but we don't know how much the thing is actually kind of just listening at first and taking in the information the information that it's hearing and then being able to replicate that or if it's able to you know, memorize, you know, being ingrained with those memories or not. I think, you know, it's a little, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say too, because, um, if it, if it doesn't, which scientifically, if it replicates cells, it would not be able to replicate your memory per se. Mm -hmm. Um, if that's the case, then the thing is very advanced because it can learn not only, you know, basic, um, dialogue, but also the English language very quickly. Um, however, I think that's probably the most believable instance of it because otherwise there's a whole element of memory that we, as, uh, purveyors of science, we don't really understand because they can copy memory and that's not something that we really have ever encountered previously. So um, it's just an interesting element of the thing that it can s- easily assimilate into humanity uh, without ever having really been a part of it. And again, that I think that does have something to do with singularity too, because the, the thing seems to have a singularity with all of its pieces. So even, so it, even though this is the first time the thing has been at the American base. It, it probably has assimilated at the Norwegian base, but we never hear it speak Norwegian. So it's it's an it's a you know complicated scientific discovery f- for sure, which probably would win the Nobel Prize as one of the characters' uh, remarks in the film. I don't think you would get that far. No, I don't <laughs> think so either. I think. Once you once you okay, got, got back, back to America, America or whatever, that, like, be hey, yeah. like yeah, okay, now you're you're locked up for the rest of you know. Yep, 
You're you're quarantined. You're fucked. Yep. <laughs> this info ain't going nowhere. No, I agree. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about Ennio Morricone's soundtrack. Holds back. <laughs> it's definitely one of Ennio Morricone's uh most minimal soundtracks for sure because he's mostly well known for spaghetti westerns uh, other italian films uh, you know in uh, some giallo films um with more of a i would say you know pretty italian soundtrack which they're more enunciated they're more um dynamic and for the thing this film has a very minimal soundtrack it's almost um basically just a synth drone at some points and um not what you would mostly expect from an Ennio Morricone uh score what do you think about that for for Ennio Morricone I like it um I think for the synth stuff you probably got cues from John Carpenter like kind of where to kind of where to go with it like not like John wrote it but he's like this is kind of what I want or you know expect yeah um because you're right the Synth score is very much a drone, which I do think fits the film very well because it's very just like, you know, like almost like a heartbeat, just, you know, slowly kind of building and pulsating in certain key moments at the, uh, throughout the film, while the rest of the film uses more of a classical score, but it's very under understated, muted, not, you know, bombastic in any way, and it fits, you know... The, tone and the scene of the films yeah i mean going it, for. it really seems like ennio morricone was emulating john carpenter's score at that point and it does seem like he had a lot of influence um john i mean carpenter had a lot of influence on ennio morricone as to what he wanted for the score uh, i think the drone works really well like even in the the opening scene where we talk about or uh, not the opening scene uh, our opening credit sequence um where the uh you know um McCready's delivering his dialogue to a tape so that he has it on file um there's just like a subtle drone to that that actually sets the mood quite well because it just shows the sinister aspect of what's happening but a very minimal way um and that reoccurs too at the end of the film as you have McCready and Childs just sitting down and just you know waiting for the end you have a very minimal synth score there to punctuate like how dark and down this this actual scene is of of, you know basically they realize that they can't get off this base they're stuck there and they just have to wait for the end that's inevitable it's it's a very dark and i would say dreary score and I think it works really well because to have Morricone really come out with, with something like, uh, you know, a choir, choral track, uh, the horns and trombones and things like that that he's known for for more of his spaghetti western style um, would really be out of place within the thing. So to have more of a, I would say it's really what you would consider a cold droning synth score, which works really well to mimic the atmosphere kind of makes me wonder why john carpenter just didn't do the score himself yeah it's it's i don't know why exactly you know maybe the thing as a director took up more of his time and so there really wasn't much of a chance for him to do 
the score specifically? I, I'm not really sure. You know why? You know maybe maybe John was just like you know idolized Ennio Morricone and he he wanted him to have it on the soundtrack. I'm not I'm not I don't really know, but you know you're right. In most aspects of this, this could have been a John Carpenter score. Um, and just minus the classical right, parts and fill in with you know since you yeah know. And you, you wouldn't really have noticed a difference. So you know. But I think Morricone does a good job anyway. And seeing John Carpenter perform this live, you really get the the feel for the the sinister aspect of the the soundtrack, highlighting the the darker moments. Speaking of the ending, what do you think of the ending? Because the ending really leaves things open ended. You there's still that aspect of not really knowing who is the thing if the thing has really been eliminated or if it's still out there. Um, and how do you feel about it? Is the ending like a, a darker ending? Is it? Oh, it's a dark ending. It's a pretty dark ending. I think because whether the things destroyed or not, try if, whether or not the things destroyed or not at the end and the ending is just McReady and Childs, they're dead. So whether or not it's dead or not, whether or not either one of them have been assimilated they're dead so even at the end of the day it's like hey we defeated the thing all right they're dead if one of them is the thing they're dead because the other one's gonna die it's gonna be they they will be killed by the thing yeah if if they're both the thing (laughs) then well eventually eventually they'll be able to you know whenever the rescue party gets there fuck the rescue party and then they'll be dead so you know it's yeah. I, I, there's no, there's a, it's a no win scenario all the way around. Either way, it's not a happy ending. And I like that. I like the fact that it's such a bleak, miserable, just down in the dumps ending. The fact that after all of this, they're, 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 they're fucked. Granted, even going into the final fight with the thing, McCready tells like the ones that he's, you know, fighting with. We're dead. We're fu- either way. No matter what, we're going to die. So if we're going to die, let's at least you know fucking kill this thing and you know try to at least save the earth. So how do you like to interpret the ending? Because there's a lot of open ended aspects of the ending that you can you can interpret it many different ways. I mean, I I like I think at the end. Honestly, I think at the end, Childs has been infected. I don't think McCready's infected. Because we spend so much time with McCready, there's no real instance where he could have been infected. The only Unless, time I would say is when we don't really see him, and he comes and they're, they don't want to let him in. Mm-hmm. That's really the only time where I could see the film getting away with, like, we're not with him. So he could have been infected at that time. Well, at the time. same time, like, what was out there that would have infected him? Right, the, exactly. The, because the thing at the time, as we know, was assimilated with one of the... And his motivation at that point would not be to, like, blow up every other part of the thing. So it seems really far-fetched to believe that. Well, like I said, at the same time, we don't really... The, the measuring the thing's intelligence, once it's assimilated, we don't really know. So it very well could have the intelligence, like, maybe if I, you know, say I'm going to do this, then they'd be like, oh, you know, it's not the thing. So, I mean, I, that you kind of have to argue in your head how, you know, the intelligence of the thing once it's fully assimilated into a person. Um, 
But I think so. But because we spend so much time with McGreedy, I don't think he's the thing at the end. I think, however, because Childs disappears at the end, when he comes back at the end, he's he has a very different tone of voice in the way he's talking. And you could argue maybe it's due to exhaustion of wandering out in the fucking cold for you know half an hour, essentially. You know, the freezing Antarctic cold. He's exhausted, tired, and he's not you know. As hot-headed and pissy as right. he yeah. p- as he usually is, but um, but I just I just think too because at the end you when we the two are talking, um, you know we see McGreedy's as other people throughout the, since this film has come out have pointed out you see McGreedy's breath you know the vapor just freezing instantly when he talks and when except for like one spot. When Childs is talking, you don't see it. And I almost want to say that's more due to, like, a continuity error. Because what would be the point of, like, having it filmed in such a way where you can't really see Keith David's, you know, vapor freezing from his mouth if you're trying to hint at something? Right. So, uh, to me, that only comes across as maybe a continuity error. And there's... So, I think by the end, he's infected. That's just me. But at the end of the day, like I said, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's a bleak, dark ending. Everybody's fucked. Whether McCready's the thing, Childs is the thing, or they're not the thing. They're dead. Yeah, I so, mean, the, the only way that it matters is that, it, that your the thing lives on. And if, not only that, the paranoia is still there. Right. Unfortunately, the ending of our episode did not record. However, I can sum it up for you. Martin gave the thing 10 out of 10. And I gave it a 9.5 out of 10. We both agree that it's really a great film... Um, Martin probably more than me just because he uh, enjoys all of the paranoia of it and the atmosphere. Uh, I agree with that. Um, I think Halloween just tops it just a little bit for me, uh, but I would give it a nine and a half out of 10. Our next episode is going to be The Room followed by The Disaster Artist. So that will be in the next two weeks for The Room and then two weeks after that for The Disaster Artist because we are on a bi-weekly schedule. You can catch us on iTunes, Google Play, uh, and Podbean or any other podcasting app. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. We have a Twitter account at blood and black rum. And we also have an email address at blood and black rum podcast at gmail.com where you can let us know what you want us to cover on the show. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash blood and black rum podcast. And that's where you can donate to us. That donation is monthly. So just let, um, just to make sure that you don't donate too much because I don't want you to go over your spending limit. Um, however, anything that you can give back to our show will help us in the long run by keeping this podcast going. So thank you for whatever you can donate. Um, so tune in next week or uh, in two weeks, I'm sorry, for The Room. And thank you for listening. We hope to give you 100 more episodes of Blood and Micron podcast. Take care.